Hey everyone, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 26th episode of The Writ Podcast, the first episode of 2022. So, Happy New Year, and hope you all made the best of the holiday season, as difficult as that might have been. On today's episode, though, I have a very special guest. For the last six years, Dan Arnold was the Director of Research in the Prime Minister's office, and during election season, he was the Liberal Party's pollster for the last three federal campaigns. He's now making the leap back to the private sector, returning to his old home at Polera as Chief Strategy Officer. But first, he's here to talk to us about his experiences. Dan, thanks so much for joining me. I'm, I'm happy to be here, uh, here virtually with you. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of the writ and all the work that you do over the years, Eric. So this is a, this is a big thrill to be, uh, to be on the, uh, the podcast here. Yeah, we did a podcast after the 2019 uh, or the 2015. I can't remember which one it was. Maybe it was 2019. 2019 we did. Yeah. Yes, that's right. We did one just after that election campaign. But uh, now that you're moving away from the, you know, from the dark offices of the PMO, you're now unburdened to uh, to tell us all your secrets, which <laughs> I, I'm sure you'll be willing to do. Uh, only, only for you and your uh, and your many listeners. All right. So uh, there'll be lots to talk about, but I think that it would be good to give uh, people uh, a bit of an overview of the work that you did. If they're not familiar with the work that you did with the PMO over the last six years, what was your role and what was the kind of stuff that you were doing? Yeah. So I'd say, you know, in terms of my role as, as director of research in the prime minister's office, it was really about overseeing government of Canada, public opinion research. And I'd say the government does a lot of, of research and, um, you know, it's not the type of research you're going to see in the newspapers, you know, they can't, they are not allowed to pull on partisan issues, but, you know, Health Canada is doing research on a lot of different things, you know, in the short term, obviously related to COVID the last couple of years, but even before that, you know, they're testing people's views on, um, you know, safety measures and uh, uh, concussions and all sorts of different topics like that. Um, you know, they're doing surveys on um, employee satisfaction, um, helping testing advertising campaigns the government runs to make sure that they're effective, uh, as well as, you know, keeping tabs on kind of what's the top of mind issues for Canadians, what the Canadians put a priority on, what do they want the government to focus on? And, you know, in, in focus groups and other methods too, we'd also kind of just test different messaging out and uh, just make sure that the government's talking in language that is relatable to Canadians, that they can understand and, um, and that uh, kind of connects with them. Um, I'd say, you know, that's kind of the government research. I'd say within the office, I kind of saw myself as a bit of a uh, receptacle for all that research that kind of comes in because, you know, most people do not have the time or the, uh, the interest to leaf through pages of reports. So, you know, my, my job, I think, was largely to keep tabs on all the research that was out there and then make sure that the right people knew the stuff that was most relevant to their jobs. I did lots of presentations for minister's offices. So I'd go to the minister of the environment's office and tell, you know, all their staff about just sort of co a collection of all the research that's out there on the environment. What's the top important issues for Canadians? How do they feel about pricing pollution? How do they feel about other things the government's doing? What's some of the language to use? Um, you know, same thing in other offices with other staffers, just to make sure everybody was kind of up to speed on um, the landscape when it came to what Canadians uh, think. I'd say that, you know, in government, people can sometimes get the blinders on because you just live and breathe this stuff 24-7. You're just talking to people who just digest this thing and listen to the RIP podcast. And, you know, uh, you know, we listen to Power and Politics and all the shows. And I think, uh, you know, part of my job was just to kind of keep people grounded on what was going on in the real world and what, uh, you know, what Canadians were actually paying attention to and, um, you know, putting their, their priority on. What was the role of this kind of research in decision making? Was it largely, did it have a, a role in terms of 
directing decisions or was it primarily based on communications? I think I, I would see it more as a communication tool, generally speaking. And I know, um, you know, people are often people get it kind of cynical and they say that, uh, oh, governments are just making decisions based on the polls. I, I don't think that was my experience. I'd say it was more a case of, you know, the government would decide, you know, because it was something that was promised in an election campaign or because they felt it was needed that we wanted to do this thing. And it's like, how do we do this to Canadians in a way that's not going to uh, cause a backlash? I think the best example of that will be something like, you know, pricing pollution, which would, you know, never be something that a pollster would say, hey, we should we should do this because this is going to be really popular. Uh, it's more a case of, you know, this is something the prime minister felt was important uh, and wanted to do. So then how do we do this in a way that is going to, um, because it's a very complicated concept, right? Like no one knows what carbon taxes are and how much a ton of carbon is and how you know the market pressures work. So like, how do we do this in a way that we can actually explain it to people in, uh, in language that they're going to understand and actually kind of get what the rationale is behind this? So I'd say a lot of it was just kind of trying to make sure that the things that the government was doing were going to be you know relatable and understandable um, to Canadians. You uh, were polling during the, the, you know, the first days of the pandemic and afterwards. Was there any really kind of remarkable shift in public opinion that you noted during the pandemic that was, you know, something that was just out of the out of the norm that you wouldn't normally see in normal times? Oh, I mean, I, I was absolutely blown away just by how quickly things uh, shifted overnight there. Uh, we do a, a tracking survey through a PCO, Pretty Council office, uh, where every, every week we're in field and, you know, just asking some general questions, you know, what's the most important issue facing the country um, and, and questions like that. And, um, you know, I would say in the first four years of government, it goes up and down a little bit. We definitely saw environment kind of rising gradually as an issue towards the end of the first mandate. Um, you know, sometimes if, uh, if Donald Trump said something crazy, uh, NAFTA or Canada-US relations would bump up three or four points that week. But, you know, generally speaking, the shifts were very minor. We never had a single issue that was over 25% most important issue facing the country in the entire, you know, four years times 52 weeks uh, that we were doing that tracking survey in the first mandate. And then about one week back in March of 2020, when the, you know, the NHL shut down and the FPM went into quarantine and the world just kind of like uh, fell, fell apart overnight, it seemed like, I mean, we went from a place where COVID was the most important issue for, you know, 15% of people the week before to over 50% uh, that week. And even I actually went back and we actually like looked at the, the day by day kind of of that week because public opinion was literally moving by the hour that week uh, when you saw a jump of 40 points in a single week on a question like that. Um, very unprecedented. I mean, I've never seen anything like that. Um, you know, even when, you know, financial markets crash or you have big external events, usually, you know, a question like most important issue is going to go up maybe five points. Um, and this was just completely through the roof. And uh, certainly then throughout COVID, I would say we definitely noticed those shifts. Uh, you know, I went from kind of reporting a monthly summary of what was going on in terms of public opinion to a weekly because things were moving just so quickly uh, in terms of how people were feeling, how they were responding, their intent to get vaccinated. Um, you know, all those questions that are so important when the government's trying to, you know, respond and, and make sure that they get people vaccinated and following instructions to stay home and whatever the health guidance is there. You were seeing those very dramatic shifts uh, that were happening on a, on a weekly basis because people were so plugged in to the uh, to the news. Is that do you find that that was changing over the last little while? Um, you know, like, you know, how did public opinion really shift in 2021? Uh, you know, going into the summer, going into the fall, compared to, 
you know, 2020, when it seemed like, you know, we all, I remember the first days of the pandemic, we did, we thought it was going to be like, you know, that the movie contagion, it was going to be some awful thing that was going to be um, just really scary. I remember going to the grocery store and just being terrified because I didn't really know what was going on. Um, and I, you know, I feel like there must be a shift in public opinion about the pandemic. And now that we're approaching year two. Yeah, I think it's, it's just, like people obviously are still very um, attuned to COVID. It is still an important issue for Canadians, um, especially with Omicron now. I'd say that the fear factor is probably not as high now as it was back then, which I think is a interesting challenge for all types of governments now when you don't have people quite as afraid. It's maybe there's less acceptance of some of the measures that would be taken then to respond to it. Um, and I'd say people probably aren't quite as hanging on every word than everything the governments do in response to it. Um, you know, people were tuning in daily to watch the prime minister every day for several months, you know, walk out front the big black door and give his, his press conference. It was pretty remarkable because I'd say like most of my presentations for the first four years when I was in government, I'd say, look, we've done this great thing on housing and it's, it's wonderful. And when you tell people about it, they love it, but nobody's heard anything that we've done. And it's completely, Canadians are completely oblivious. There's like, you know, 8% awareness of this, of this great announcement that we've made here. Um, and Yet, then when you got into that situation for the start of the pandemic, people were just so plugged into everything the government was doing. They actually, you know, you would have an announcement and you would have 80%, 90% of people that were aware of the announcement, uh, which is just very bizarre uh, uh, when it comes to government. So I'd say that is something that was certainly the case for the first couple months and has gradually sort of petered off. You know, people are still obviously aware of big announcements when, you know, Doug Ford gets up and announces something uh, on schools one week and something different the next week on schools. You know, those are the sort of things people will pay attention to. Um, but I'd say that their, their appetite for COVID news is probably not as high as it was back then. And look, we're all kind of frustrated and a little tired of this thing. I think that certainly comes through in the research as well, too. And, you know, for that reason, people maybe aren't on tenter hooks the same way as they were just to kind of get that information that they were earlier in the pandemic. Um, let's move on to the, uh, the elections, because uh, that is, you know, certainly my, uh, my deepest interest in, in the work that you did. Um, so you've done three elections uh, for, the, for the federal liberals. What was the polling program that you did in these campaigns and how did they shift between 2015, 2019 and 2021? Like, what was your daily intake of, of data? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, in 2015, I would say... It was a bit of a different situation because I went to work for the Liberal Party back in March of 2014. So there was that there's quite a long runway there in the sense that, you know, I had a year and a half to kind of set things up and, you know, do a lot of pre research. And, you know, you're coming into that from a very different position where the leader is a bit of a blank slate. I mean, you know, Canadians have known Justin Trudeau since he was uh, in diapers. So it's not like he's unknown to Canadians, but certainly, you know, what he what he stands for, the type of politician he is, was not something that was quite his form. So there's a lot of kind of setting up that positioning and trying to figure out sort of what is the platform, what is the message, how to best present him to people. And you've got a lot more time to really think those things through. Um, whereas when you get to 2019 and 2021, you know, I'm going from working in the PMO, doing my day job we just talked about, and then, you know, basically the writ drops or slightly before the writ drops, then I'm, you know, I'm flipping over to the party and there's not that same kind of runway. And you don't need that same kind of runway maybe from a research perspective because 
um, you know, opinions are a lot more formed. You know, you know, by now, most Canadians have a pretty strong opinion of whether or not they like or don't like Justin Trudeau. And, um, you know, there's not quite as much of a, uh, they're going to judge him based on his record, you know, more so than uh, some of the things he says in the campaign. But I'd say in 2015, there was certainly a lot of work done uh, in the lead up to that campaign, just to test the, you know, platform and ideas and ads and messaging and, um, you know, really kind of get a feel of what that campaign was going to look like. And it was a much longer campaign. It, you know, I, it felt like it was 500 days. It probably was, a, what, 90 days, 80 days, something like that. Um, but certainly, I'd say in that respect, um, you know, there was a bit more time. So it didn't have that same kind of frenetic pace to it that maybe the last couple ones have. Um, in terms of what happens in the campaign, it wasn't dramatically different, I would say, each time. Um, we were doing nightly tracking. Uh, we did about 800 interviews a night at the peak. You're not always starting off with that at the start of the campaign. Um, and you're not always doing that on weekends, but I'd say by the kind of like post-debate crunch period when you know votes really are moving around very quickly and people are making up their minds, we got up to about 800 interviews a night. That was the same in all the campaigns. We had a pretty regular focus group uh, pattern um, that was going on a couple of groups a week across the country uh, in all the different election campaigns. I think you know, as time went on in the later campaigns, I got a bit more into doing more qualitative online type of surveys, asking a lot of open-ended questions on surveys and testing visuals and videos and things like that online a bit more, because I do think that's an interesting uh, way to, you know, without having to do 500 focus groups, actually get a sense of how people are reacting to some things that aren't quite as clear cut that you can do on a telephone survey. Um, so I moved a bit more in that direction, but I think, um, you know, in terms of the crux of how research was being fed in and the process within the office and the campaign team. I don't think it was dramatically different between the campaigns. Can you give us an example of uh, when, you know, the data that you're gathering during a, uh, during the campaign informed a decision that was made on the campaign trail, particularly maybe one from the last campaign, but just in general, like an example of, you know, something coming up maybe in a riding or a region. And that's when you decide to send the, the prime minister there or, you know, when it comes to a messaging or an attack on the opponents is an example of where, you know, the public opinion research actually had a real world impact that you could see the next day, even if we, you know, the rest of us didn't know what was behind it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's kind of two parts to that. I mean, the first part would be just from the kind of geography and the, the target maps. And that's something that's ever evolving. Um, you know, the party has basically a, a database in place of projections that are being updated every day as new data comes in and regular meetings with the field team where they're talking not just to polling you know, people, but also to the data team and the field team and people on the ground and just getting a sense of what's going on across the country. And that's shifting the map in terms of where the prime minister goes. I think the, the kind of best example I'd use of that, that I love is in, in 2015, um, you know, that was a map that was obviously very ever evolving. Um, because, you know, we were rising in the polls um, quite dramatically during the campaign. And, you know, we would, uh, we would do polling in, uh, in rural New Brunswick writings that we hadn't won in 100 years and no one would believe it. So then we talked to the field team and you'd have to like do a follow-up writing poll and things like that. And then as a result of that, the prime minister would be going there. Um, we did, uh, I remember we were seeing some good things on the ground with, uh, with Mike Bozio's campaign in Hastings, Lennox and Addington in that campaign, which was not on our target map at the start of the election campaign. And, um, you know, the, the, the field reports coming back were very positive there. So we did a riding survey. The riding survey showed we were competitive there. And, you know, as a result of that, we had um, 
you know, some of the candidates in neighboring ridings sent some volunteers over there to help uh, Mike Bosio out. The PM added a stop there on his last kind of run through the country uh, along the 401, the last couple of days of the campaign. He did some great events there and in Northumberland as well, too. He did it in his big events at Tim Hortons and Bellevilles with huge crowds. So, you know, that was definitely a situation where, you know, where the PM went, where resources were being shared between different campaigns. Uh, was certainly driven by the polling. I'd say that's the case in almost every campaign. You're always looking and trying to figure out, you know, where can we best use our resources? Where do you send bodies? Who can afford to, to share their volunteers with somebody else to, to get them over the, uh, over the edge? Um, the other side of it would be more kind of when it comes to, to messaging. And again, I think that's pretty ever evolving too. I'd say, you know, in the last election campaign, certainly all the research um, that we were doing in the first part of the campaign around uh, Aaron O'Toole showed that, you know, the worst thing you could say about him was that he wanted to uh, legalize assault weapons. Uh, you'd sit down people with people in the focus group and you'd, you know, you, you kind of go through the conservative platform and some of the things he was talking about. And, you know, you kind of play devil's advocate and you probe back and forth. And I mean, people were just horrified at this idea once the moderator would suggest that like this guy might want to actually make assault weapons legal in the streets. And it really, it really changed how they felt about him. It was the most horrifying part of the platform for most voters. I personally was most horrified by the cover of the platform, but uh, for the voters themselves, that was the thing that really kind of uh, worried them. And, and, you know, again, at that point, it becomes a campaign decision. And, you know, the campaign, I think, rightly decided like not to just kind of fire that pistol right away and save that ammo for the time when it would be most effective, which was, you know, the prime minister bringing it up in the TVA debate, and then, you know, kind of the follow up with advertising with messaging in the uh, Labor Day long weekend period that followed when voters would be more uh, attentive there. But I do think that's certainly something that um, uh, for quite some time we knew was going to be an important uh, counter offensive. And, uh, you know, that certainly came through loud and clear in the research uh, that we were doing. I'm curious. So, you know, you've been uh, three campaigns now. Justin Trudeau's relationship with the data, like what uh, what does what does he normally see on the campaign trail? What's his interest level in it? Um, you know, how much of how much of the data is is fed all the way up to the top? So I would say like he's a, he's definitely a, a numbers guy. He definitely loves data. Um, at times, I think people have had to kind of lock his access to the uh, the uh, the big databases that have all that, so that he's not spending all his time kind of going through riding by riding and, and looking at that sort of thing. So I think he gets really into a lot of the metrics around you know how much are different candidates door knocking, uh, are they doing uh, work in the riding with volunteers, um, so that when he actually is um, you know, meeting someone on the campaign trail, he can say, oh, look, I hear you guys are doing tons of door knocking. That's great. Um, keep up the good work. So that, that stuff he definitely gets very involved in. Um, I would say certainly in a campaign context, it's, it's best not to um, get into the polling numbers to a large extent, because uh, that can be, you know, that can be a bit more distracting. Um, you know, certainly between election campaigns, I would be doing presentations for, you know, cabinet or caucus and I'd get into issues and what matters to Canadians and things like that, for sure. And I've, I've always found the Prime Minister himself to be very interested in, um, in just kind of the data. And he's got a very good understanding of it as well, too. Like he's asking the questions and response in some of these presentations that you would expect people in a, a master statistics class to ask you, not necessarily people that you would expect, you know, off the street to ask you in terms of just kind of like, you know, the correlation versus causation and things like that and demographic split. So he does get into that, but I'd say in a campaign, that's not something that uh, I would ever suggest uh, the leader should be that focused on. I know that, you know, Trudeau seems to 
enjoy the direct interactions with people. Um, like how does how does that come into play? Like <clears throat> the on the ground experience of of people versus the you know the numbers that you might be providing. Like how how does how does he balance that those kinds of inputs in terms of information? Yeah, I mean, I think it's. Um... I mean, ultimately, I think um, he definitely thrives on a lot of those personal connections and interactions. Uh, and I think that was one of the challenges of the pandemic as well, too, is that you kind of lose a bit of that um, and that ability to just you know sit down with a lot of young people in a room and you know, kind of hear what they're going through. And you know, I think those personal connections are very helpful to politicians because it's you know feels a little more real and they can kind of put a face on things so you know i think there's a lot of value that comes in in those types of uh of interactions uh for sure um you know especially when it is a a leader like that who does connect really well with people so i think i think those are very valuable i think that's something that you lose a bit of in the in the pandemic for sure um so i want to move on to you know the specifics of the last campaign but before doing that something you know, you, you talked about 2015, how you had a riding map that just kept on expanding as, you know, the, the support for the party was going up. But in 2019 and 2021, it seems like it was very much more, uh, you know, the discussion much more about targeting, about vote efficiency, which, you know, was very high for the liberals in the last two campaigns. So what kind of role does that play where you're, you know, maybe not trying to get the 38, 39, 40% of the vote, but just trying to get the 170 seats regardless of how much of the popular vote. Like, how does that play into the strategy that you're setting up before a campaign begins? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a different situation for sure. Because in 2015, you know, we literally needed to quintuple our seat count to, uh, to get up to where we needed to go. And, you know, as a result of that, um, and, you don't, and you're not dealing with many incumbents and things too. So it's, it's a very different kind of open board in terms of, of how those different pathways work. I think the... You know, the thing that uh, certainly the campaign leadership and you know the Katie Telfords and all the people on the campaign always really preached was that idea of having multiple pathways to victory, not just saying like these are the 170 ridings we need to win. Um, so let's make sure we throw all our all our resources there. Uh, it was like always a case of having you know different ways to get to that end result, so that you know if Quebec shifted in one way during the campaign, you still had kind of other paths to get there if suddenly in BC, you know, our vote went up because the Greens went down, um, you know, that was one path, but also, you know, if uh, because of Kenny's unpopularity, things broke a bit better in Alberta, that was a different path and always having those different options on the table there. So I think, you know, that was always the case in every campaign wanting to make sure there were those different pathways and not just kind of having a set list of, you know, these are the 170 ridings that we need. Um, so that you're always playing with a bit of a bigger board than you would need at the end of the day. Um, and then it's really just a case of kind of adjusting that as the campaign goes on. And sometimes you had to close off some pathways because it wasn't coming together for us. Um, you know, I'd say even, even, you know, between elections, even I, I, you know, you keep this in the back of your head and I would, you know, I had dreams of a Vancouver Island breakthrough or maybe urban Saskatchewan and, you know, things just aren't coming together in some places. And then sometimes you do have to kind of close those pathways off. Um, and I'd say the big difference then was in 2015, just, it was a very evolving board and there was a lot more movement then. And, you know, things were shifting dramatically, whereas in 2019 and 21, things just didn't shift to the same extent. And, um, you know, um, as a result of that, maybe there weren't quite as many moving pieces, but there's still some ridings that are going up and down based on what's happening on the ground and how much work's being done and, um, you know, what we're seeing in other, other metrics and the polling as well, too. So there were still some shifts around the edges that were happening during those campaigns. All right, let's get to 2021. And um, <clears throat> of course, the biggest question is, 
the election timing. So, um, you know, was there a point before August 2021 where you were, I, I, I assume it was not your role to tell, you know, the government or the, the party, you know, when to call an election, but rather to provide, you know, indications of whether there's a window or not. Was there a time before August 2021 where you were saying we have a window here that could work for us? I mean, I think that's that's a tough question in the sense that um, you know you're always obviously looking at what the polling numbers show and what kind of the opportunities are there. Um, you know, I think the I mean the honest answer is I think that people were just so all engrossed with responding to the pandemic that if you look back to like the you know the the fall of 2020 window when some provincial governments went, I think you know, the focus was just so all encompassed on responding to this, this massive crisis that was facing the country that um, there was never really much serious consideration that I heard anyways about, you know, trying to throw the country into an election in the midst of all that. Um, and I mean, I think, uh, I mean, we saw in Newfoundland as well, too, like, you know, once you get into a campaign and COVID goes sideways, things can go very sideways on the campaign as well, too. So I think, you know, it's maybe a little different than a lot of minority governments where it is a lot more calculating, where you just kind of are looking in for that specific date on the calendar. I think there were some other considerations because of the COVID uh, dynamic that certainly were at play here. And even just, you know, sending the prime minister out on the campaign trail when he's not vaccinated, I think is something that would be irresponsible and it would make it hard to do the types of things you want to do on a campaign and the types of visuals that you would want in a campaign if you're gonna be calculating about it as well too. So I think, you know, in that respect, I'm not sure that there were maybe as many windows as, um, you would normally get in a minority government when you're kind of like playing out those options um, there. Well, what was the thinking then for August? Uh, you know, how were the stars aligning for a call at that point? I mean, I think in, I think it comes down to, there's obviously a lot of factors and a lot of different decision inputs that go into these sort of things. I think, you know, my, my personal view would be, you know, in a minority, if you do not pick your moment, the opposition will pick a moment when it is uh, not uh, your moment <laughs> uh, to 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 force uh, an election, and we've uh, you know we've certainly seen uh, that happen in the past before. Um, I think you know again from my I'll just speak for myself. I'd say that I think there is a lot of uncertainty at that time when you looked ahead to the winter. Both again from that kind of logistical question of you know what happens in the winter is our case is going to go up. Is it going to be safe to campaign? Um, you know that's been the experience at least the first winter of COVID that things got worse in the winter. Um, and you know what happens if the opposition brings our budget down next winter and you know we're in the middle of a, a tough situation for COVID? Like is that a situation we want to be in? So I think logistically that is certainly something that was on the minds of people. Whereas in, you know in summer you can you can do campaign events outdoors. You know there's a lot more in terms of ability to do that type of thing. Um, and I think just politically speaking, like I think the longer you wait, the more uncertainty there is, um, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the economy, who knows what's going to happen uh, with other issues in the future. Um, and, um, you know, the longer you get into a the lifespan of a government, you know, time for a change builds over time, things like that. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, the uncertainty of waiting kind of weighs on people to some extent as well too. Um, and even that kind of, even if you got past COVID, I think you're into that kind of like, you know, that the Churchill scenario, right? Where you kind of, you led the government, the, the country through COVID, what happens after that? So I think there's a lot of uncertainty that kind of was, was there in terms of what happens if you wait a year or two and you know, it's the opposition that's deciding the timing and not the government. When, when the decision was made, what were the like? What were the odds you were giving at that point? 
in terms of getting a majority? I think it was it was never a, certainly would never say it was a given. I think you know our projections in that summer were kind of always on the razor's edge of around you know 170 seats. Um, so certainly you know campaigns are a completely different reality from um, between election campaigns when people start shopping around and looking around. So I mean I think there's always an awareness that things could change um, for better or for worse in an election campaign. Um, so I'd say that you know the path or the multiple pathways that we just talked about were certainly there for a majority. Um, and, you know, the question then was whether or not those would actually come to fruition in the campaign or not. Was so, you know, cause in the first days, the, the framing from the media was that this was an election to try to get a majority. Uh, was it approached that way or was it approached as we have a shot at one and we'll see what happens? Was there a lot of confidence that uh, you could get to 170? I think there was certainly a lot of lot of hope that we could get there. I don't think if people didn't see a realistic path to that, I don't think um, there would have been much enthusiasm for calling an election campaign. So, um, you know, I think that was certainly something that was on a, from a campaign perspective, the hope, though, I think, uh, I mean, uh, you know, Jagmeet Singh uh, said that he was hoping he would form government, right? People always have hopes, right? And uh, hopes can be of varying degrees of realism or not um, at the end of the day. And I think, you know, I think if we're being honest, I think the the fact that it kind of became seen from the public as this kind of quest for majority was probably not helpful uh, for the campaign uh, at the end of the day. Um, but I think certainly there was a sense that that path was there, um, or there were paths there to to get to that number. What What was the impact of the call? Like, what did you see in the data uh, in the first few days after after the election began? Yeah, I think it was very similar to what you probably saw in the media polls and in the stuff that you were doing there, where you know the support levels did fall um, pretty rapidly out of the gate, um, which again is not completely unexpected. I mean, you look at some of the pre-election polls that had the conservatives at like you know forty-five percent in Alberta. Like, I think there was things like that that you knew for sure were going to change once once you got into an election context. Um, but I, at the same time, I think there is a bit of a uh, a, a sense at times when you see those numbers going down of like, you've, I've never been skydiving, but I imagine it's kind of like you jump out of the airplane and it's like, oh God, uh, I hope this parachute opens. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the parachute did open and things landed uh, in, a, in a decent outcome at the end of the, the day. So I'm not uh, necessarily, uh, uh, it was not a, uh, a complete splat on the ground, but, uh, you know, certainly there was a bit of a, I think, I think it's fair to say there's concern when you see numbers, you know, going down under the gate. And I think what probably concerned me more was just what was being heard in all the focus groups, this idea that, you know, Aaron O'Toole, you know, I've never really looked at this guy before, but he seems pretty reasonable. He seems pretty moderate, a bit like a red Tory, you know, and I think when you start hearing language like that, that was a bit more of a concern in those early days of the campaign um, compared to the horse race numbers, which are going to always move around and, uh, you know, are, are not going to be that meaningful till you kind of get people tuned in at the end of the campaign. What, what did you make of the conservative launch those first couple of weeks before, uh, before the TVA debate, before you know, some of the discussions around the campaign change. What did you make of that conservative campaign? You're survived, were you surprised that they were doing as well as they were? Yeah, yeah, I think they did, I think they did a good job. I mean, if I'm uh, kind of like clinically looking at this from the outside, I think uh, certainly O'Toole projected an image of a moderate leader, which was very different from the Aaron O'Toole that was seen in the leadership race. And uh, I think that was helping him with a lot of those, um, you know, people who had previously kind of closed the door on the conservatives or weren't really looking at them because they were thinking of, you know, 
Um, you know, Andrew Scheer, who was a leader who was like against same-sex marriage and had very regressive social conservative views, which were um, you know, kind of disqualifying to a lot of people. And I think they were looking at O'Toole as somebody who seemed like a pretty reasonable conservative um, in their eyes. And I think that was at least opening the door up to him um, for a lot of people. So I think, uh, you know, and they got their message out early and they had their, their platform was, you know, fairly well received initially anyways. And it certainly conveyed the image of a leader who had a plan and he would certainly say that over and over again. And I think they were pretty much on message. So I think, I think the conservative campaign did a pretty good job uh, out of the gate for sure. Was there a point in those first couple of weeks where you were looking at the data and you were saying, you know, we're going to lose? Uh, I think there was certainly a, a, I'd say my view is certainly that was a possibility uh, for sure those first couple of weeks. And I was pretty blunt with that with the campaign team on some of the meetings that we had um, where, you know, I said that, look, if you look at the kind of trend line for how people feel about O'Toole and if, you know, this continues, uh, you know, we're going to end in a very unhappy place in the campaign and we will, we will lose the election. And I think, uh, you know, you think you have to be blunt in these situations. You can't kind of, uh, uh, couch the reality of the situation. I think that was the reality of the situation uh, for sure. And I remember some of the public polls. Now, these were the primarily the IVR ones at the time. And there were some of them that had the conservatives ahead by, at one point, I think nearly 10 points. Um, in your tracking, what what was your kind of biggest gap that you had, if you did have the, you know, the liberals behind the conservatives? Um, like, how did your own polling match some of the public polling that the rest of us saw? Yeah, I think I, I never internally saw a gap to that extent. I think we had the conservatives showing up by three, four, five points, depending on the you know the different roles that you're pulling together at one point, um, which would have um, um, you know, and again, especially with a trajectory the way it was going on some of those underlying questions about uh, you know just how they felt about O'Toole com- comfortableness with the conservative government, things like that were certainly trending in a in an unpleasant direction. There, I think from a horse race perspective, though, um, you know, it never got maybe quite as bad as some of those polls, but certainly um, you know, not a comfortable position to be in from a, from a campaign perspective. From, you know, when you were watching the, the numbers coming in uh, during the campaign, what was the point where you said, okay, now, you know, now things are stabilizing now, you know, we, we're, we're still in this. Yeah, I think I think I felt very good uh, about that kind of period between the TVI debate and the and the English debate there that week or a little over a week there, uh, kind of over Labor Day. Um, you know, the the PM I think did very well in both of the French debates, which um, I think was reassuring because ultimately, you know, if, if the Quebec kind of bulkhead held there, I think that was always. Um, you know, the, the map for a conservative victory where they don't have a Quebec breakthrough requires them to really, you know, run the board in Ontario. I, do, I always like to play a bit of that kind of like put your head in the uh, shoes of the opposition uh, campaign and what are their pathways and what are their opportunities there. And I mean, just kind of going through the numbers there, like they would have had to really run the table in Ontario and in the 905 to, um, to win based on the way things were falling out in some of the other regions. So I think you know, I felt good about the way that was going. I certainly felt good just about the way um, the guns issue that we just talked about had landed coming out of that TVI debate. And actually, like, it was a top of mind story for Canadians for four or five days when we're asking people on our nightly tracking, you know, what news stories have you heard about lately? What have you heard about on the campaign trail? It was coming through um, for most of that week afterwards. The um, and, and we also asked questions about kind of like, has your opinion of the leaders gotten better or worse over the last 
week and why. And on that kind of open-ended follow-up of why, there was a lot of stuff coming through on O'Toole around the guns issue. And I, I feel this guy is maybe not as moderate as I thought. So I do think that was definitely landing. I felt good about that, the way things were moving on that front. I felt pretty good about the way some of the advertising that we were testing was actually being received by people. Um, the, the Take Back Canada stuff, that was already in the wild at that point. And you know, could see some of the reaction from um, you know, metrics there that was, was having a pretty good impact. We saw, we were starting to test the Bill Blair guns ad, which was just like lights out in focus groups, one of the best ads I've ever tested in focus groups, just in terms of you know, turning people against um, O'Toole overnight when they saw that. And you know, you know that that's gonna be on air in three more days and you kind of feel like, okay, that's gonna have a good impact for us in the 905, which like I said, was very important when it kind of came to those maps of where those pathways to victories were for not just us, but for the conservatives. So, you know, you can start to see even if the polling numbers haven't shifted dramatically on the vote numbers, that the way things are lining up, they are lining up in a, a trajectory that's looking favorable for uh, the stretch drive. What about the whole vaccination issue, uh, the protests that were happening? Uh, what role did that play? Yeah, I think, I think that was important in the campaign um, because ultimately, um, you know, COVID was still one of, if not the most important issue um, for Canadians in the campaign. And, you know, I think um, certainly the Conservatives came across as looking as if they were on the wrong side of the issue in the eyes of most Canadians. And I, 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 I get they definitely had internal pressures there and they were feeling some heat from the PPC and their own caucus and, um, you know, you know, O'Toole being a leader who is newer probably didn't feel comfortable even, you know, telling his whole, all of his candidates they had to be vaccinated. So there's a lot of internal pressures that they were probably dealing with and having to balance there. But I think when you're balancing those internal pressures, um, you certainly don't look outwardly as if you are maybe as um, resolute on an issue where the public was looking for, you know, strong leadership and resolute uh, leadership, which is what the prime minister was, was offering. And I think, um, you know, the vaccine issue therefore was playing quite well for us. I think the little flare up with Jason Kenney towards the end of the campaign as well too, probably helped uh, us to some extent, um, just kind of, again, shed a spotlight on the issue um, for us. And I think, you know, the protests were hard to say because I mean, it's very, like it's very difficult for the campaign team to have to deal with that. The people who are on the bus and on the plane and, you know, dealing with protesters, blocking your paths and things being thrown at you. It's obviously not anything that anybody wants to see on the campaign trail. But I think, you know, the prime minister, certainly, you know, we'd show people how the PM was responding and they felt that he was responding in a very strong way. And I think that probably was helpful for him um, just in kind of reinforcing some of those leadership traits that uh, you know, people did want to see in him. So I think, you know, as an issue, it was probably something that still played as a, um, you know, a net positive for us, but it, you know, obviously a very lot of uncertainty around the issue um, more so than you'd like to see on a campaign trail. How about uh, from the New Democrats? How are you looking at them during this campaign? And, and what, did, what, what did you make of the campaign that they ended up pulling off? Yeah, it's interesting. Like I was honestly, I was probably more worried about the NDP uh, at the start of the campaign um, than uh, I would say more than the Conservatives. But I was very worried about the NDP because, um, you know, you always have a large group of progressive voters who are open to voting liberal, open to voting NDP moving around between them. We certainly knew going into the campaign that a lot of young people were drawn to the NDP um, and that, uh, you know, we had a lot of support among older voters, specifically older women because of the COVID response. But, you know, the, the connection that they were feeling towards the PM in terms of the way he'd responded to COVID was not necessarily translating to younger people who 
you know, probably weren't really aware of a lot of the things the government had done. Um, I remember, you know, budget awareness was like 25% among people under 35. It was in the 60s and 70s uh, in terms of people who were older than that. So they weren't necessarily aware of a lot of the things the government had done, uh, especially on an issue like environment, you know, where just like um, you'd sit down in a focus group and there'd be a perception the government hadn't done anything on environment. And you kind of, once you take them through some of the measures that had happened, um, and some of the investments that had happened around, you know, protected spaces and, um, uh, you know, tree planting promises and uh, renewable energy investments and things like that. They definitely had a positive reaction, um, but they just weren't aware of that out of the gate. And, uh, you know, I think that was something that certainly um, was a cause for concern because, you know, young people in 2015 were important to the coalition and um, are a lot more fluid in their vote intent. So, you know, the threat was there from the NDP. I think, again, I think they ran a pretty good campaign in terms of being, uh, you know, critical of Trudeau and the government. I think they are, their ads were pretty effective. I think they, um, the, the all talk type of message, I think uh, Singh was pretty rigid and sticking to that. And I think um, that probably made um, our life more difficult too, because it was a, uh, you know, an effective critique that was coming now from two directions um, towards the campaign. So I think in that respect, it was it was harmful for us. At the same time, I don't know, because they were so doggedly negative and doggedly attacking, basically like every press conference was just seeing lashing into the prime minister as if he was, um, um, I mean, more so than you heard uh, criticism of, of Harper even back in the day. And I don't, again, I don't blame them for that. That's what you got to do in a campaign. Um, but I do think that maybe really made it more difficult for Singh to kind of push forward you know, the happy warrior um, persona that has, has worked for him at times and maybe didn't show him to be necessarily a leader in waiting, a prime minister in waiting to the same extent uh, that it would have and maybe detracted a bit from some of the, the more positive stuff they could have put forward there. So, you know, as a result of that, I didn't see a lot of movement towards the NEP really at any point in the campaign. Um, you know, even if their message was effective at maybe hard, hurting us to some extent, I never really saw them catching a lot of life in the uh, in the campaign did uh, did the ground game make a difference in some of those because even with you know they got they were up a couple points from the previous election um but they only gained a net single seat was was it they like why were they unable to pluck any liberal seats away yeah i think that i think that probably made a, a difference at the end of the day it's certainly you know the work that um you know, uh, Azam Ishmael and everybody at the party has done over the last uh, many years, and even going before that in the, in the lead up to 2015, I think one of the the key stories is just really the work that happened at LPC, um, you know, building up a, a machine that actually had, you know, lots of volunteers that were engaged, you know, the, the things the party did to even like open up membership to be free, just to get more people in there so that there could be more volunteers and build up the ridings and do days of action to get candidates into a regular between election door knocking cycle, which is not always the norm in the past. So I think a lot of the groundwork that actually has happened over the last, if you want to go back, you know, I guess close to 10 years now um, at the party level probably did pay off in terms of having the get out the vote resources in those key ridings to, um, to make the difference there. And I think that's something that certainly uh, had an impact in winning the close ridings. I think, I mean, you've crunched the numbers too, but I mean, if you look at the ridings where the liberals were, plus or minus 3% um, on election day in 2021, we won like 19 of those 24 ridings there. And I think being able to get out the vote and squeeze out those extra few percentage points in the places where you know it's going to be close um, definitely made a difference uh, for sure uh, in both the last uh, two campaigns.
Uh, as Quebec was a, a big part of your potential paths to a majority, um, how, how did that play out with the Bloc, uh, the Bloc campaign and the English language debate, the question there? Um, what was going on uh, from your perspective in Quebec and, and the role it played in the, in the final outcome? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think Quebec was almost the inverse of uh, the rest of the campaign from our perspective in the sense that things were going very well there in the first part of the campaign. I mean, certainly we were positioned to win six to eight additional uh, seats in the province compared to what we had coming into the campaign based on the data that we had anyways. Um, you know, and I think, you know, Blanchette was not looking great on the campaign trail, you know, again, in focus groups. Um, on those momentum questions, he was not registering to the same effect that he had been in 2019. Uh, a lot of people describing him as arrogant. Um, you know, there was controversies around the Troisième Lien in Quebec City. There was controversies with his him kind of like cutting off his candidates and not letting them talk. And those, that actually was kind of registering to some extent. So I would say that, uh, you know, things were lining up fairly well for us in Quebec. I think the... Um, you know, the winner of the English debate uh, this election was Yves-Francois Blanchet, which is uh, uh, a little bit of a bizarre reality, but that's, you know, that, that is politics and things like that happen uh, at the end of the day. And certainly, uh, you know, as of the next day in our nightly polling, we saw a huge shift in Quebec, both in terms of vote numbers and in terms of just how people felt about Blanchet. And he went from that negative momentum to very strong positive momentum scores, the same types of scores he was generating back in 2019, which I hadn't seen until that point in the campaign trail there. So I do think that was certainly a turning point uh, in Quebec, um, for sure. Hmm. Um, so going into election night, how are you feeling? Um, I mean, I think I'm, I'm nervous by nature, and I, I recognize that uh, there are certainly, um, you know, situations where uh, there can be turnout differences at the end of the day. You never really know how motivated people are to turn out uh, in a campaign. And, you know, there were enough close races where, I mean, if we lost 19 of those 24 close seats, uh, you, you can do the math in your head, it would be a much different situation, right? So I think there was some nervousness. I think, you know, feeling good about the way the last half of the campaign went, for sure. Um, you know, that left us in a better position than we were uh, at the start of it. But, um, you know, I think there's always that element of uncertainty there that you never really know for sure uh, what the end result would be. And you're, uh, at this point, too, I've been doing this enough for, um, you know, that's one of the differences, too, I guess, from 2021 compared to 2015 is that, you know, I've been working with uh, a lot of these MPs and, uh, and candidates for a long time. And you have that, you know, that connection there where even if you even if you know you're going to win the election, you're still um, you know, you're on the edge kind of hoping some of those close seats will break your way so that those people that you know are good MPs and good candidates get elected. I mean, I'm from uh, Alberta. I grew up as an Alberta liberal. That's where I kind of cut my teeth. And uh, I think, you know, going into election night, we certainly knew that, um, you know, there was a path forward to win, you know, up to three seats in Alberta. There's also a path where we win zero seats or, you know, maybe one seat. So I think, you know, kind of hoping some of those uh, close races break your way at the end of the day is always something you're looking for in election night and paying a lot of attention to. Was there something that was a particular surprise? I mean, you're always going to have individual cases. You know, we could go through the whole map and, you know, ones that kind of pop um, more than others. Um, and, um, you know, I'm hesitant to name specific writings here. I think there were, um, I think there were a few pleasant surprises in a few of the, you know, a few of the BC writings, to be honest, that, you um, um, where the progressive vote did kind of break our way at the end, that wasn't a given. Um, we were, we knew in the, like in the end of the campaign, we were very aggressive on the environment message in BC. We had some ads with Andrew Weaver, um, 
who had endorsed us, the former Green um, provincial leader there. And we were really aggressive in playing those in ridings where there wasn't a Green candidate running, in ridings where there um, was a lot of progressive vote up for grabs. And, you know, again, we're feeling pretty good reaction based on testing that those were going to be effective in terms of coalescing some of the progressive vote there at the end of the day. Um, I kind of joked that Andrew Weaver was, uh, we had Barack Obama endorse us, but I was more excited by the Andrew Weaver endorsement at the end of the day. So uh, he can feel like he is uh, more important than Barack Obama in, uh, in, in Canadian political context these days. But uh, so, I mean, again, that's something that you're kind of hoping that it breaks our way and that things are going to play out the way that they've kind of been drawn up, but you never really know for sure. Um, and I, I think I was pleasantly surprised by the way that, um, you know, some of the guys like John Aldag and, you know, a few of those ones that, um, you know, were maybe not givens um, did come over the finish line at the end of the day. Stepping back a little bit, um, you know, you've done now three elections. How has the Liberal Voter Coalition changed between 2015, 2019, and 2021? Like, what is that coalition now? And is it any different from what it was uh, seven years ago? Yeah, I think, I think in, I mean, in terms of geography, I'm not sure it has changed dramatically. I think it's certainly moved a bit more urban um, compared to rural. And I'm sure you've, you've crunched those numbers as well, too, and, and looked at that at some of the election results. Um, you know, we've seen some, some big losses in rural Atlantic Canada, even to the point where, you know, we're still winning some of those seats, but these were seats that were literally won by 50%, 60% of the vote in 2015 that are much narrow margins now. So, you know, I, I do think, um, you know, making sure that uh, the, the party going forward connects with, with rural Canada, I think is uh, important, especially in places like uh, Atlantic Canada and Quebec, where, you know, at least in the, in the distant, in the near past, we have been successful in some of those ridings, but also places that are kind of like those, those Peterboroughs and the Bays of Quinties. And we talked about Mike Bosio's, you know, riding earlier, you know, ridings like that, that are kind of those semi-urban ridings. Um, you know, I think those are places where there's been a bit of a step back. In terms of demographics, I've certainly seen um, some really good progress with the party among um, racialized Canadians, among immigrants um, compared to 2015, um, you know, and I think a lot of that is, you know, work that again has been done by MPs and, um, uh, you know, who are, are going out and doing the outreach and, and talking to uh, a lot of those communities and putting the time and the effort in. Um, that has certainly paid off. Uh, I know, you know, Minister Mary Ng has done a lot of great work with the Chinese community up in, uh, in the Markham area, and that certainly paid off in the last election campaign. So I've seen some, some positive steps forward there. I think in terms of uh, I mean, we talked about younger people earlier. I think that's an area where there has been a bit of a, a step back in terms of in 2015, it was just probably our strongest demographic was younger voters. And I think they have drifted a bit away. And, you know, we've seen some some good progress among older women, especially, I'd say, in the last couple of campaigns. And I think the COVID response has boosted our support among uh, older women to a large extent. But I do think liberal support has softened uh certainly among among younger voters over this uh, this time period those people who supported the party you know back in 2015 um now they're a bit older is, is it have they stayed with the party and or is it that you know it's new younger people aren't voting liberal for the first time they're voting for the ndp um Certainly the second of, the, of those cases would be true. Um, and I think it, it under, it's understandable. I mean, I think, you know, when you're 
in opposition, um, you know, you're you're railing against government. You're talking about big change and dramatic things, and uh, there is that excitement there that I think did connect very much in 2015. Uh, and I'll give the NDP credit. Like I think I think Jagmeet Singh has done a lot of good work, um, you know, in terms of being visible on TikTok and social media channels, and you know, getting out there with young people. Um, and again, I think that's something that um, COVID has made difficult the last, uh, you know two years and that, uh, you know, every time Justin Trudeau is at a podium, he's talking about uh, uh, a, a pandemic and uh, or, or a plane crash or a mass shooting, like you kind of, you kind of lose the ability to do those exciting young people, spontaneous events that, um, you know, are so impactful there uh, when you're, you know, talking about very serious issues. Um, so I think that's something that probably has shifted um, to some extent on that front as well too. Uh, and then I think, um, you know, again, among people who, again, were those 2015 first time voters who did vote liberal that time. Um, I think there's always a challenge and this is something that uh, uh, Barack Obama um, had dealt with too, right? There's those expectations that are always placed uh, on somebody who comes in and, you know, at the end of the day, people often feel like maybe they have not always met those expectations. Um, and I think that's something that's um, certainly telling the story about how we actually have delivered a lot of things that, that were promised on environment, on indigenous reconciliation and other issues is something that, um, you know, maybe doesn't always translate through when, when it's COVID 24 seven. So I think that's something that people are kind of aware of uh, as well too, making sure that there's better awareness of some of the things that have been done that, uh, you know, that those, those promises were delivered on because the perception out there in a lot of corners is that maybe not everything was delivered on. Uh, we'll finish with this, just, um, you know, you watch trend lines uh, and now <clears throat> forecasting forward, um, you know, what are the longer term trends that are going to be really important, both for the Liberal Party um, in terms of, you know, their future voter coalition, their chances in the next election and politics in general? Like, how have things been trending in a way that you think, um, you know, you've been watching happening over the last six, seven years and will have an impact in the next Five or ten. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's hard to to say for sure um, because if we've been having this conversation two years ago um, in you know January of uh, 2020, I think uh, our prediction for the next two years would have been uh, pretty off base. Um, so I think you know there's always a lot of unknowns that are going to change the the dynamics and the landscape. I think certainly. You know, more broadly speaking, the you know, hopefully, hopefully, we're into a post-COVID world uh, before too long. And I think that's something that's going to have a lot of societal shifts. Um, you know, with you know people working remotely and therefore moving away from the downtown cores, and you know that's going to change electoral maps to some extent, along with you know redistribution and things like that too. So I think there's there's some interesting shifts there that probably affect the um, the geography of the maps. I think. Um, but above and beyond that, there's the, there's the broader question of kind of like, what is next for our society? Is this going to be something where we want to go back to the way things were in 2019? Do, is there an appetite for big transformational change out there? Um, what does the post-COVID uh, economy look like and how are people adapting to that economy? Um, so I think there's some big you know, policy questions there that are going to be um, you know, challenges for any government to respond to, opportunities for opposition to kind of stake out some turf that is different if they have an idea that uh, fits into that post-COVID world that is, um, you know, different from what the government's doing. I think, uh, you know, things like that are going to certainly uh, shift the landscape in, in ways that uh, are difficult to predict, I think, uh, at the moment. Yeah, well, 
let's hope that, uh, you know, if we're making a prediction for the next two years, that it'll be more positive than what our prediction would have turned out to be uh, for the last two years. So uh, we'll see. Um, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to speak with me. Uh, you know, you've been doing, uh, you know, work for the last few years, and now you've got this new phase in your career working for Polara. So I wanted to wish you all the best in that. And thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, yeah, sure. Anytime. It's uh, it's it's good to try to uh, remember all of these uh, things in my head because uh, it's uh, uh, as you said four months ago, but four months in COVID times again feels like four years. So uh, it's been a good stroll down a uh, memory lane with you here, and I uh, you know look forward to continuing to read the great work that you do, Eric, uh, at the uh, at the RIT. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks again to Dan Arnold. And that'll be it for this episode of the RIT Podcast. If you do like the podcast, please give it a rating, review, and whatever platform you use. You can find episodes on therit.ca, on YouTube, where you can actually watch this discussion, and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you're new to the RIT, please check out the website at therit.ca. And if you want to, please subscribe. Free subscribers get notifications about new podcasts and access to the first weekly writ of the month. The weekly writ is my regular update on all the latest election-related headlines, new provincial and federal polling, riding profiles, and what I'm calling the Every Election Project, my attempt to chronicle every election that has ever been held in Canada. A paid subscription gives you access to the weekly writ every week, along with other analyses and bonus podcast episodes, particularly during election campaigns. With provincial elections this year in Ontario and Quebec, there will be plenty to talk about. Okay, that'll be a wrap for this week. Keep safe, have a good weekend, and thanks for listening.